Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Gargoyle Podcast. I'm Nathan, a.k.a. the Gargoyle. Uh, as I mentioned in the last couple episodes, last week did get a little bit busier than expected, and unfortunately, I did fall behind in my reviews for Halloween Movie Month. But I am trying to catch back up on them as quickly as possible. So, continuing on with the movie for Wicked Wednesday, this episode is going to be about Sinister. Uh, on a side note that doesn't actually relate to the movie itself, um, I watched Sinister on DVD rather than a digital copy of it, like through Netflix or Hulu or something like that. And before even getting to the menu, uh, there are previews for Texas Chainsaw 3D, The Possession, The Haunting in Connecticut, The Last Exorcism. And even though some of these movies looked pretty crappy, honestly, it did make me sort of miss watching previews before movies. When I was a kid and my family would rent movies, practically everyone else wanted to just fast forward through the previews and get to the movie. But I actually really enjoyed watching previews. It let me know what other movies were out there, what movies were coming out, uh, what I wanted to see, and stuff like that. And a lot of DVDs either don't have previews, or they have previews just as an extra feature, but it doesn't actually start the movie out with them. And even the ones that do have them, you can very easily skip past all of them just by clicking on the menu button. And it's, it's a very minor thing, but... It's something that's yet another example of how movies and the movie-watching experience are changing. I've been buying a lot of VHS lately, and honestly, I don't really know why I'm doing it, because I would definitely much, much rather have Blu-rays of all the movies that I want. But there's still something about watching a movie on VHS that takes me back to, uh, to what watching movies used to be for me. And yeah, the quality of VHS is absolutely crappy, but I don't know, there's just something... There's just something about watching that older format that I still love. Now, this doesn't actually have anything to do with Sinister, but uh, but it was crossing my mind when I was watching the movie, so just thought I'd mention it. And someday, I might actually do a little bit more of an in-depth discussion on the movie-watching experience, but for now, on to the experience of watching Sinister. When I was watching Sinister, uh, I did so with the headphones in because the missus got a little creeped out even just from watching the preview, so I wanted to be respectful of her and not uh, not subjugate her to a movie that was going to end up creeping her out all night. So I watched it primarily with headphones in. And while watching a movie with headphones is not my ideal way to watch a movie, in some ways I think that it actually helped to intensify this movie because I was a little bit more immersed in the movie than, than I might have been otherwise. At least I was more immersed in the sound and the musical score of, of Sinister. And I do think that the music of, of Sinister is part of what makes it so creepy. Now, maybe that was because I had the headphones in, and so I couldn't escape the sound as much. I couldn't have some more of that atmospheric noise because everything that I was listening to was the movie. Or if it's because I was paying even more attention to it because I didn't have as many distractions. Or if the music really was just that creepy in the movie. But regardless, the, the sound of Sinister absolutely drew me into the movie and, and it had a huge impact on, on what I thought of it. Now, as I've been saying with the last few movies that I've been reviewing, again, I am going to be getting into some spoiler territory. So if you've not yet seen Sinister and you want to see Sinister, go watch it. I do think that it is a good horror movie with a lot of things done very, very well. And unfortunately, some things done not so well. But if you are wanting to see it, I definitely recommend it, so go watch Sinister. But if you don't especially care about spoilers, uh, if you don't ever plan on watching Sinister, or if you've already seen Sinister, then stick around. Alright, so, start getting into this. 
Sinister starts out with old film footage of four people with sacks over their heads getting hanged. And the ropes are over a branch tied to another branch on the other side of the tree. The limb's being cut, and when it falls, it lifts the four of them up. You can't see who's cutting the branch, but you can see that what's cutting them is one of those like limb trimmer things. So while it's not a quick, violent, gory death, if you know anything about hanging throughout history, then you know that while it might not be quick and violent, it is definitely slow and painful and gruesome. So while on the surface it might appear like it's not that violent of a scene, it is absolutely a scene wrought with suffering. And how this movie starts out is one of the things that I do like about it. Not the fact that people were being hanged, but that the movie jumps right into the killing and the mystery of how and why it's happening. Because you don't actually see who's cutting down the limb. You just see that the limb is being cut. And so it just dives right into the mystery of who's doing this, why are they doing it, what's happening, and it takes you right into the mystery. So after that opening scene, uh, you see Ethan Hawke's character, Ellison Oswald, and his family moving into the house where those murders just took place. And you find out a lot of information about that character in a relatively short amount of time. Uh, you find out that he's a true crime author, um, which is, in case you don't know, kind of a mix between investigative journalism and a mystery novelist. But it's going with things that have actually happened and trying to present them in a factual way rather than any sort of, of bias or uh, sensationalism. But you find out that he's a true crime author, uh, that he knows that he moved into the house where the murders took place, and, and it's actually a somewhat humorous scene um, where his wife asks him if they've moved in a few houses down from where a crime scene took place, and Ethan Hawke's character says, no, no, we didn't, which is funny because technically he wasn't lying. They didn't move in a few houses down from where a crime scene took place. They moved into the house where the crime actually took place. So while that scene is a little funny, it also sets up some of the character of Ellison putting more focus onto his work than onto his family, which does become a, um, a bigger issue as the movie goes on. You also get a little bit of backstory with uh, Ellison and his interaction with the police and how some of the books that he's written in the past didn't sit very well with law enforcement because they presented them in a not-so-positive light. And so there's a little bit of back and forth on how sometimes the cops get it wrong and sometimes the information about them is presented wrong. And so it's just an interesting um, back and forth, especially in light of how sometimes uh, the media does present law enforcement. But I, I like that there's that little bit of tension between Ellison and law enforcement because it does help to set the characters in a real world. So there is some real world tension rather than just the protagonist and some sort of supernatural terror. So I like that it does give it a little bit more of, um, of grounding in reality. And that's one of the things that I think this movie actually does pretty well. I think that a lot of the stuff that does take place in reality is pretty presented in in a very realistic way even though there were some things that were done purely stylistically for example the uh, the first dinner scene where it shows them eating dinner around a table and there is barely any light at all and the rest of the house is is completely dark no one actually has that many lights off when they eat dinner so yeah that definitely was a stylistic choice to give the movie a little bit more of a mysterious mood or setting little things like that sometimes um, aren't quite as realistic but the actual family dynamic the actual family interaction i think that that was actually done very very well 
I think they were realistic. I think there was enough emotion to feel like real characters, enough conversations about what's going on to help propel the movie, but also not conversations that are so overwrought with we are describing the plot of the movie for you. And and so I just really I really liked the the family interaction. Yeah, there might have been a little bit more exposition than what quote real people would actually um would actually say if they were having a conversation and Maybe there wasn't quite enough emotion um, when the wife said that she was going to take the kids and go to her sister's if things didn't work out with this book, but but at least things weren't overacted or over-dramatized. So while it might not have been quite as emotional as one would expect, I'm actually really glad that it didn't feel like they were trying to force emotion like so many other movies do. So given that choice between maybe things not being quite as emotional and forced emotion... I'm glad that they went with the uh, the more subdued emotion because, again, to me, it actually helped keep things grounded and helped it feel a little bit more real. Now, I've already mentioned that the music impacted me, but the impact that the music had actually started happening pretty early. Um, it wasn't that long into the movie before before some of that soundtrack started coming through that really, really set the tone of this movie. There was a booming rhythmic bass that, that gave it the feeling of a heartbeat, but there was also an eerie, screechy type of synth and and whatever that noise is that kind of sounded like someone, like a voice growling. It definitely gave this movie a very, very creepy atmosphere. And I think it did an amazing job in establishing the setting. While the video footage is playing, there's sort of this high-pitched squeal that kind of makes everything feel a little bit off and a little bit just uncomfortable. And and again, I definitely think that the sound in this movie did an amazing job, even down to some guitar music that's playing that gives it a feeling of an old-school film noir detective. You know, and, and again, with Ethan Hawke kind of investigating what's going on, trying to find this missing girl, trying to figure out what's happening... It does it does harken back to some of those film noir tropes. And honestly, because I was watching with headphones and because I was so immersed in the film, at times I was a little too immersed in the film. Uh, again, the uh, the headphones that I had in kind of blocked out every other noise. So when there were subtle little floorboard creaks or subtle little uh, noises of wind or scratches at the window, like it really, really brought me in. And those were the only things that I could hear rather than little noises very easily getting lost amongst other noises like clocks or the refrigerator running or things like that. So when the music was used to heighten tension, it really, really heightened the tension for me. All right, so that's a little bit about the sound, but you know, what about what's actually shown during the movie? So those deaths that, uh, that are shown at the very beginning of the movie, which are filmed on an older film, um, Ethan Hawke finds a box full of old reel-to-reel movies up in the attic. So he starts watching them, and he sees the same footage that we, the viewer, saw at the very beginning of the movie. And then after watching that one, he looks at some of the other film that's in there, and it is footage of another family getting murdered. And so he watches more, and it's another family, and another family. And over the course of the movie, Ethan Hawke's character watches the films of four families getting murdered. And even though he is a true crime author, and even though he has seen plenty of pictures and heard plenty of stories, it is very, very obvious from his reaction, the trembling as he tries to take another drink, and, and some of the, the fear in his eyes, 
that even though he's been doing true crime for at least a decade, there is something very off and very disturbing about what it is that he's watching. And maybe it's because most of the time he has only seen the pictures or listened to the stories, but this time he's actually watching video of it happen. And if watching the videos wasn't bad enough, he didn't know where this box of film came from. And he had the same question that I had when I was watching it of who was actually recording these videos. You know, who's, who's the one there? And with not knowing who's actually recording these videos, it does give them a sort of voyeuristic vibe of a serial killer. So even though the movie is about some demonic force, um, how the murders are actually going about are, are done so in a way that is very, very real with very real people. And we don't know until the very end whether or not it is a real person or if it is some sort of demonic entity. At the time, regardless of which one it is, how it is being shown and what the audience sees, again, does give it that, that vibe of a serial killer. And I think that that was a really interesting mix of taking, again, stuff that can be very real, like home invasions, and then mixing it in with that supernatural demonic force. And I think that was just a really interesting and I think a very good choice on how to actually present this film, how to present what actually happens in it. But anyways, um, back to the videos that that Ethan Hawke was watching. Having seen any horror movie ever, if I had been him and had just moved into a house and there was some weird box in the attic that um, that wasn't there in the police photographs and that has videos of people being murdered, I would be getting my family and getting out of there as quickly as possible. But, of course, in the movie, things have to play out the way that they play out to actually bring closure to the story, etc., etc. But this was definitely another one of those horror tropes that uh, as soon as weird, creepy things start happening, why does that character stick around? I, I would be out of there in a heartbeat. And the ironic thing is, in Sinister, if I had actually gotten out of that house as soon as I watched that first film, that actually would have been part of my demise. So even though Sinister does use a horror trope in terms of the main character continuing to stick around even after weird things are happening, I do really, really appreciate the fact that it took that horror trope and turned it into part of the plot and turned it into part of how the monster attacked its victims. I do think that it was a very smart move and a very interesting move. And again, if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. If you've not, then as I keep going through this, it'll all start to make sense a little bit closer to the end. And speaking of the monster and, and the victims, up until the very end of the movie, the only people that we actually see get killed in the movie are the ones in the films. And it's really interesting to me that the protagonists, the characters that we actually care about, they're not being chased by a monster throughout the film. But this movie still does a really, really good job of setting that creepy and sometimes very suspenseful and terrifying setting and, and atmosphere. And for the vast majority of the movie, I do think that it is a really, really great atmosphere. Uh, I think that there's very good pacing. Um, things get very, very suspenseful and creepy, um, but there's enough stuff leading up to it to where there's good character development, there's plot setting, um, you're invested in the characters, and, and it doesn't spend too much time on some of that character development that it feels like it's taking too long to get to some of the creepy, suspenseful aspects. Uh, another example of how this movie did a really good job of combining realistic 
actual fears with more of the supernatural terror is the fact that um, the character of Ethan Hawke's son had night terrors. So on top of all of the other creepy, terrifying things that uh, that Ethan Hawke character is going through, there's also his kid going through something that, if you've ever experienced, are terrifying. You know, night terrors aren't just having nightmares. They're not just having bad dreams. They are essentially hell unleashed in your mind while you are asleep, but they are so real for the person experiencing them, and they are terrifying and, and horrifying, and the person doesn't even realize it when they wake up. Like, they have no memory of what actually happened, but for those around them, it is a terrifying, terrifying thing to watch. Now, the representation of the Night Tears was definitely underplayed, especially with the fact that they were able to wake him up so easily from it, but... With the background in psychology and knowing what night terrors are and how they really, really can affect someone, I mean, even just that alone is is both terrifying and tragically sad, and and it really is horrifically sad for the people going through them. And on top of the movie itself, uh, making it seem like people can wake up from night terrors relatively easily, the parents, Ethan Hawke and his wife, um, they appear to downplay what night terrors are like. They, they make it seem like they're not really that big of an issue. Although, the fact that they're talking to their son and their daughter, the daughter's still very young, it does make sense that they would downplay it rather than telling them just how terrifying it really, really is. Alright, so for about the first 30 minutes of the movie or so, um, you're, you're getting to know some of the characters, there is some very weird, very creepy stuff going on, but it isn't until about 30 minutes in that Ethan Hawke's character finally sees that image of whatever that demonic creature is for the first time. Um, now, in some of the information that, that Ethan Hawke later finds... Um, He's referred to as Mr. Boogie um, when Ethan Hawke character is talking to Vincent D'Onofrio's character, who's a doctor in the occult and philosophy and religion and, and things like that. Um, Vincent D'Onofrio's character refers to him as Bagul. So there's a couple of different names, um, but it's still just some weird, super creepy, demon-looking character. And the first time that we as an audience see him, he's under the water in a pool. And while this might not be the most terrifying thing that's ever been seen, it's still pretty creepy. Especially when you think of it from Ethan Hawke's perspective of watching these movies alone in the dark with very unsettling circumstances surrounding them. And because Bagul, or Mr. Boogie, uh, is underwater, it's distorting his face and making it even creepier. And because Bagul's face is is white, it has the same kind of look as Mike Myers or of Ghostface, just this blank, white, emotionless face. And this can also be playing on fears of clowns or demons or, or voodoo. And it's a very good, identifiable, but also general face onto which people can really place their fears. And, and that's something that made Mike Myers so terrifying. That's something that made Ghostface so terrifying. It's something that even makes uh, Jason Voorhees so terrifying. Rather than having a weird, distorted, disgusting face, it is just a blank canvas that people can project their own fears onto. And, and again, I think this is something that's been done in plenty of movies, but it's also done, I think, really well in, in Sinister. So as Ethan Hawke's character is watching more and more of these films and trying to figure out what's actually going on, what has actually happened to the people in them, uh, he starts drinking more because it's, it's pretty unpleasant 
unnerving and unsettling. Uh, and he starts being even more consumed with his work, which causes him to grow even more distant from his wife and his family. And, and like I've said about so many other things about Sinister, I think that it's done really well. I think that it shows a relatively realistic depiction of it, maybe airing a little too much on the side of caution of not overplaying the emotions. But personally, I would much rather it be a little underplayed in terms of not not forcing those emotions um, than to have it be like some movies where everything is so overly dramatic and everything is really forcing those emotions and stuff that is just a minor issue is turned into life or death matters. And and so again, I think that by underplaying the emotions just a little bit, it does make it feel at least a little bit more realistic rather than feeling um, rather than it feeling overly sensationalized just for the movie. And some of that subtle, not overly sensationalizing things can also be seen in the films that Ethan Hawke's characters watches. Uh, they, these are some pretty gruesome deaths. People are hung, they're drowned, they're burned alive, they have their throats slit, and they're run over with lawnmowers. But in each of these very, very gruesome deaths, the camera either pans away from it for a second, or you just see the reflection in Ethan Hawke's glasses rather than actually seeing it directly. So while these are very gruesome deaths, it's not actually that violent of a movie to watch. I mean, even what happens at the very end, you don't see it happen. You just see the aftermath. And I like this for a few reasons. Uh, first of all, I like the fact that this movie still has a very strong sense of, of suspense and terror without over-sensationalizing the violence. And I don't know this for a fact, but I think that another reason why the um, why these deaths weren't seen directly is to add another layer of disconnect between the audience and what's actually happening. Even though there is a fairly high body count in this movie, at, at least 12 or 14 people, it somehow feels more distant because it just shows the videos from the past and even in those videos it like i like i said it doesn't show them directly so it shouldn't feel as distant as it does because we're still watching people die in very gruesome ways but somehow it does somehow it does make all of these violent violent acts seem so distant and again i think that this was probably intentional Maybe it's a commentary on how sometimes when we watch movies, uh, we say, oh, well, it's just a movie. It's not really impacting us. And so it has that that layer of removal. But but people don't really think about how much movies really do impact them, which, again, is <laughs> kind of one of the main themes about Sinister is what these children see has a tremendous impact on who they are. Uh, one of the other things that I liked about having the deaths take place through film is that it's a play on the standard horror trope of one person seeing something that others wouldn't or don't believe. However, it's doing it in a slightly different way. Rather than seeing strange visions or seeing demonic creatures or seeing um, things in their dreams, he's just watching videos. So these are things that other people could in reality see, but for the sake of this movie, they're, they're not. And again, this is something that's actually real and tangible, but it represents something that's that's usually overlooked by others. It represents, again, that that sinister <laughs> name was very intentional. It represents that sinister underlying theme of the impact of movies on who we are. 
other little things about this movie, there's, I think, a really good use of light and dark. Um, even though some of the scenes, it doesn't really make sense why they don't have more lights on to actually see what's happening. The movie does do a very good job of only showing you what the light is, is showing. So unlike some movies where the person is supposed to be completely in the dark, but we still see too much of the environment, um, Sinister does a really good job of if the light is shining on something and the character sees it, then we see it. If it's outside of the light, if it's in the dark and the character doesn't see it, then we as an audience don't see it. And again, I think this does a really, really good job of providing some of that heightened tension and suspense, which really helps to uh, to set the atmosphere of this movie. And the use of light and dark isn't the only way that this movie draws you in and puts you in the perspective of uh, of Ethan Hawke's character. Uh, something else that's done is uh, when when he sees the underside of the, the lid of the box that had the movies, he sees little stick figure drawings of each of the deaths that took place in those films. And he looks through, and there's the first four that he watched, but then you can very clearly see that there is a fifth family. But there's something that, that catches his attention, something that distracts him, something that startles him, and so he looks away, and that fifth family goes out of focus, and you can't see who it is or if there's any names next to it, and you can't see what's happening. So you know that there is, or is going to be, a fifth family that's murdered, but but you don't know who it is because he looks away from it. So even though this movie isn't shot as a point-of-view sort of film, you know, in the sense that we do see Ethan Hawke's character throughout the entire movie you see what he sees. So if he doesn't really focus on something, then you as the audience also don't really get a clear picture of what it is that he saw. And I think that's just really good, really smart movie making. You know, I've talked about this plenty of times, but in a good horror movie, you stay with a protagonist. You never see the monster by themselves. You only see the monster when it is with the main character. And, and Sinister does an amazing job of sticking with Ethan Hawke the entire movie. Except for the old footage of the murders, I don't think that there's a single scene where Ethan Hawke's character is missing for more than about five seconds. Like, he is ever-present in this movie. Everything that happens, you go through it with him. And, and again, I think that just does a really, really good job of bringing you into the movie. At least, it definitely brought me into the movie, because when he looks away from that lid... Um, and, and the box goes a little blurry, I kept trying to pause it and really focus in to see if I could see if there were names next to, to those stick figures to see if I could figure out who it was or who it was going to be. But I couldn't. You know, it wasn't a clear enough shot for long enough for me to focus in on it. But the fact that I'm trying to stop the movie to, to really focus in and see what it says, I'm forced to look for clues in the movie. Much in the same way that Ethan Hawke's character is stopping the films that he's watching to look for clues and evidence. So what he's actually doing in the movie, I find myself doing in real life about the movie. And I don't know if they intentionally did that or hoped that people would do that, but it's something that I definitely found myself doing. And again, it made the film feels so much more realistic. Yes, it's a movie. Yes, I'm aware of all the fantasy. But the fact that it had me doing the same thing that the character was doing definitely gave the movie a lot more life. In fact, there are only just a couple of things that the audience sees that Ethan Hawke's character doesn't. The first one is when Bagul's face is paused on Ethan Hawke's laptop and, and he looks away for a second. And while he's looking away, the face of Bagul moves. 
even though that's in the previews and even though I knew that it was going to happen, it is still super, super creepy when it happens. The other thing that the audience see that Ethan Hawke's character doesn't is when his son is outside having another night terror and he goes to get him and then there's that dog uh, sitting there growling at him. When Ethan Hawke is focusing on the dog, we as an audience see the four or five children standing behind him. And another time that we see something that Ethan Hawke doesn't is when those same kids who are standing behind him are then running around his house and he thinks that he hears things, he thinks that he sees things, and he's sort of searching around the house. And we very clearly see these kids, but Ethan Hawke doesn't appear to. I don't know if that's because he doesn't actually see them or if this is one of the times that the movie is is breaking from what I said earlier to where he's in a much darker environment and we can just see things better than he can, or if they're just making themselves not appear to him, whatever the case is, um, that's, that is another time that the audience sees something that the main character doesn't. But it's not long after the audience sees the kids that Ethan Hawke then sees them up in the attic. And while it is super, super creepy to walk up in the attic and, and see a bunch of kids just sitting there, and then when Bagul pops out of the screen and shows up right in front of his face, again, super, super creepy. <sighs> Unfortunately, that's also where the movie starts to go downhill a little bit. Because for the vast majority of the movie, it is the suspense building things up. It is the question of not knowing what's happening. It's the mystery. It is letting the imagination play tricks on you and letting the imagination make things much more terrifying than what you actually see. Because as soon as he sees the kids, even though that initial startle of seeing them in the attic and seeing them in the little girl's room are terrifying, they themselves are not actually that creepy. And and again, with Bagul, yes, there's a little bit of a jump scare when he comes from off the screen and in front of Ethan Hawke's face, but he just doesn't have very much screen time. And so he himself is not that scary of a character. What he represents is, what he represents is absolutely terrifying. But the character itself, unfortunately, is a little lackluster. And I'd heard several different reviews saying that Sinister was an amazing movie with a really disappointing ending. And I was hoping that it wasn't going to be that bad. I was hoping that maybe they were just um, exaggerating things and the ending was going to be okay and, and that the ending wasn't really going to disappoint me. But unfortunately, they were right. The, the ending, again, the idea behind the ending is absolutely terrifying, but the execution of it is just a little, a little anticlimactic. So Ethan Hawke finally finally, after all the stuff that's been happening, finally decides to take his family out of the house and, and leave. And that's when we find out from Deputy So-and-So that each of the families that had died had lived in the house where the previous family had been murdered. So essentially, the family that was in the house where Ethan Hawke moved, um, they had lived at the house where the family before them died, and they had lived at the house where the family before them died. So as soon as we realize it's once the family leaves the house that they're actually in the most danger, then we know what's going to happen at the end of the movie. And something that makes this so terrifying is very similar to, um, to Freddy, where you can't escape him because how can you escape his dreams? There is that little bit of how can you escape this? How can you fight this? How can you stop this evil, vicious cycle? So again, the idea 
behind it is very terrifying. But the actual end of the movie really, really disappointed me. Because after Ethan Hawke's character finds out that it's moving from the previous house that is actually uh, causing the terrible things to happen, then he finds out that all of the missing kids from each of the families were the ones who actually killed the families. And as soon as he realizes that, we as the audience know that one of his kids is going to do something to him. And of course, with the setup that they gave us earlier of one of the previous children being in his daughter's room, it's pretty easy to tell that it's going to be his daughter. And in fact, it is. Uh, she poisoned him and he passes out. And when he wakes up, you see that he is tied up in duct tape and the rest of the family, the, the wife and son, are also duct tape. And you see the little girl carrying an axe, and she picks up the axe and swings it down, and it cuts to black before we actually see anything. Then the next scene shows her walking around the house, and everything is just covered in blood, and she had been painting on the walls earlier, so now all of the paintings and drawings that are on the walls have been done in blood. So again, it's, it's gross, it's um, definitely terrifying to think about, it's just a little disappointing that once the monster actually becomes real, there's not a whole lot of, of cat and mouse. There's not a whole lot of chase. And even though I really do like the story of this movie, in the sense that minds are impressionable, and especially the minds of young children, and even though I think that there is a really, really good build-up throughout the movie with a lot of good suspense and a lot of good character development, and even though it does show several families dying, it only shows them in the videos. It doesn't show anyone actually uh, being killed in real time. And I'm Definitely, definitely not saying that people need to be killed in order for a horror movie to be enjoyable. But I am saying that it doesn't really give the protagonist a chance to fight or escape. You know, as soon as Ethan Hawke sees that very first video, he's doomed. There's nothing that he can do to get away from it. So there, there's no chase. There's no hope that they'll get away. There's no uh, really rooting for the protagonist. It's more of just as soon as they figure out what's actually going on, they all die. And I think that's part of what makes the end of this movie so disappointing. A lot of suspense building things up, but then it just kind of ends. Uh, the IMDb description of Sinister 2 has the deputy learning that someone has moved into the house and tries to save them. I've not actually seen that movie yet. But this is a little bit more of what I was expecting to happen in the first one. You know, I was expecting there to be some sort of, ooh, if they do this, maybe they can stop it. Maybe they can escape. After Ethan Hawke learns from um, Vincent D'Onofrio's character that Bagul is captured in images and feeds on young children and all this other stuff, you know, I was hoping that maybe this would give rise to some of that conflict between Ethan Hawke's character and Bagul. There would be some sort of fight, whether it be literal or philosophical or... Um, or metaphysical, but there would be some sort of actual conflict between the two, some sort of chase, some sort of rooting for the protagonist. But as it is, they find out why it's happening, and then it's over. And I, I really hate to say this, because again, I really, really enjoyed watching Sinister. It almost feels like when they got to the end of the movie, the writers are like, eh, I don't know how to end this. Let's just get it over with. Let's just, let's just cut to the chase. So there's all of this rising action but then no conflict. Rising action and resolution. That's all that happens. There's no conflict. There's no falling action. There's none of the stuff that really gives a good sense of, of a complete story or resolution. It just feels somehow unfinished. It feels like... <laughs> 
It honestly feels much like the films that Ethan Hawke's character was watching that had parts of it removed. It felt like part of this movie was removed so the audience doesn't have the full story. And honestly, (laughs) saying that just now, that actually kind of makes me like the movie a little bit better. Even though I was disappointed when I was watching it, I do actually like that it once again gives the audience the same perception as Ethan Hawke's character. And I've mentioned a few different things and saying, well, I'm, I'm going to come back to him. I'm going to come back to him. The first one being how this movie captivates you and draws you in. Well, the films that people watch in Sinister, once they see the image of Bagul, that is when the children are literally captured and brought into the film and Bagul feeds on their soul. I talked about how because I've seen horror movies, if I was in that situation where there was something kind of creepy happening in the house, I'd be getting out of there as quickly as possible. But that's actually what ends up being the demise of Ethan Hawke and his family. So, again, even though it might actually seem like the ending was disappointing, stopping for a second, looking at it in the big picture, and thinking about how movies captivate people much like Bagul captures the children. Thinking about how, because of things that we've seen in horror movies, which would say, oh, there's no way that I'd be doing that. How could they be doing so something so stupid like sticking around that house? Leaving the house is actually what caused things. And again, there's just a lot of things about this movie that I really, really enjoyed. And honestly, I'm really glad that I was talking through it because getting to that realization of what we saw felt a little bit more like what Ethan Hawke was seeing that does add a little bit of depth and complexity. Now, whether or not that was intentional, I don't know, but it definitely added to my enjoyment of the film. So if you felt like the ending of Sinister was a little disappointing, think about some of the things that that I've been talking about and go back and rewatch it with some of that in mind, with the, the movie is intentionally trying to draw you in. Watch it with that in mind and... The ending might actually be a little bit more enjoyable than it was the first time around. Uh, On a side note, um, like I mentioned at the beginning, I was watching this on DVD, not through a digital copy. And so uh, there were a few extras. One of them was a feature about a, a murder house that was allegedly haunted. And some of the stories that are shared about that house are things very similar to what happened in Sinister. So even though Sinister was obviously a... Uh, a fantasy fictional movie, there are some aspects about it that very, very closely mirror things that do happen in real life. There are some things about real life that are still unexplained, and, and there are some things that do sometimes have what feels like an evil presence around them. And so with some of this actually occurring in real life, again, that makes Sinister a little bit more realistic of a movie than what you might realize just from the outset. So along with thinking through some of the things that I've been talking about, I also definitely recommend watching some of these extras because, again, it does help to bring some of that reality and fantasy together and and make Sinister such an enjoyable movie. So that's my take on Sinister, uh, a really enjoyable atmospheric horror movie that seemingly has a disappointing ending But if you take a step back, look at the bigger picture, look at some of that combination between reality and fiction and fantasy, 
honestly, it isn't as weak of an ending as I thought that it was when I watched it. So be sure to let me know what you think. Uh, if you're enjoying these reviews, let me know. I'm going to be continuing on with my Halloween Movie Month reviews. You can find all of these reviews at gargalereviews.blogspot.com. Again, I'm going to be doing themed days with Musical Monday, Terrible Tuesday, Wicked Wednesday, Toothy Thursday, Foreign Friday, Psycho Saturday, and Silent Sunday. And you can find all these reviews uh, along with links to my Twitter, at Gargoyle Reviews, my Facebook page, slash The Gargoyle, as well as other movie reviews I've done in the past, other podcasts I work on, videos from con coverage, uh, just all the stuff that I work on. You can find all of it at gargoylereviews.blogspot.com. And as usual, if this is where you're already listening to this, you already know all of it. But if this is your first time checking out this podcast, then uh, go check out my blog. Uh, let me know what you think. Follow, leave some comments, leave some feedback. And, uh, you know, just, just let me know what you think. Um, again, I'm really, really enjoying doing these reviews. So hopefully you're enjoying listening to them as much as I am enjoying doing them. But until next time. That's been it for this episode of the Gargoyle Podcast. I'm Nathan, and as always, you can find me where geekery and horror abound. <laughs>